I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. This week I'm sharing a conversation I had with the artist Sarah Swinar. I first saw Sarah's work probably about five years ago. I saw her photographs first. And she has this really interesting way of working where she collects all these different objects, uh, printed matter, memorabilia, and she makes these very complex arrangements with them, um, almost like collaged compositions, often flat on her studio floor. She's got this really amazing ability to take all these disparate things that each have their own resonance and history and meaning and make them all think about the same idea. And she does the same thing in her films. I think the first film I saw of hers was this one called Rose Gold. The conceit of that film is built around the release of the Rose Gold iPhone. And I think Sarah looked at that object and saw it as almost being a metaphor or indicative of these very, very large movements in consumer culture and aesthetics and capitalism. She does almost like a like an object history. Her newest show is called Marilyn, and it's at The Approach in London. And the central work in the show is this new film uh, called Red Film. The timing of the show is obviously a little bit strange. It overlaps with coronavirus, so it closed before it got its due time. But the small silver lining for us, the viewers, is that Sarah and The Approach have made this film available to be viewed online. What I think would be great is if you're not familiar with Sarah's work or if you haven't seen Red Film, you might want to pause this and go to theapproach.co.uk and uh, watch the film. It's about 12 minutes long, and I think if you see that, you'll be able to get a little bit more out of this conversation because you'll know exactly what the texture of Sarah's films feel like. You'll kind of immediately pick up on the language that she works with, and it's a really, really great work. I think it's available until April 30th. So uh, take advantage of this opportunity. There's a lot of video art that is available online right now so take advantage of those opportunities and go see sarah sonar's red film and then come back here and listen to me talk with sarah sonar here we go all right i originally saw your work maybe five years ago like 2015 or so and i think i had seen you know obviously i saw the photographs first i may have seen the images that um made up these kind of floral arrangements that you had done on the floor of your studio yeah, <laughs> so long ago. What was that big push that sent you from, you know, making photographs to also jumping into film? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, like, so I started as a graphic designer and the first kind of art project I, or what I would consider an art project aside from some terrible um, undergrad <laughs> dark some pictures of eggs for example from <laughs> undergrad darkroom class um, was a book um, which maybe you've seen called Kitchen Cyclopedia mm -hmm. and it was kind of the first time I discovered something like a sort of essay I've just been reading this book called Essayism by Brian Dillon that's really my favorite book I've read in a long time so I, I'm sort of thinking through his terms mm -hmm. a lot right now, but um, like that book allowed me to find a kind of essayistic style of making things where you kind of like find, make a structure and then that structure can allow for disparate impressions or images or ideas to kind of come together into one form. And photography sort of works that way like things kind of have a logic once you put them all in front of a lens and especially I think there's some logic in making something really aesthetically appealing like mm -hmm. suddenly it makes sense in a way that combining you know an old iPad and a bunch of pen caps 
to talk about the floral arrangements instead of being a field of garbage it suddenly makes more sense because there's some aesthetic pleasure in it mm -hmm. but it, a still photograph kind of has its limitations in in the sense of being able to bring together a whole bunch of material into one thing and so film kind of has the same possibilities as a book of kind of combining text and image and um, also the way that you can sort of time things and repeat things in film offers a lot of possibility to kind of pull meanings out of found materials and found snippets of text and then to insert um, a more personal narrative in as well. I started making film also because I wanted to make the work more personal somehow and I was finding like short of photographing my ex-boyfriend or something. Mm -hmm which I did do a little bit, I didn't really find a way to make the photos feel more personal. And I was afraid that they were becoming kind of object lessons or um, like that a lot of the thought that I was putting into the work and the research and all the reading that I do was sort of getting lost in these single images. Mm -hmm. So, like, yeah. like reintroducing a kind of language to your work. Almost. Yeah, like I really at that point just wanted to be able to sort of say what I meant and it's very indirect language. And I mean, like the way the videos are structured often is there's a lot of kind of indirect language, some kind of more obtuse like theory language. And then, uh, but then there will always be a few lines that just kind of cut through and speak really directly all of a sudden. Like in red film, I think it's the line like um, woman creates life man man creates art but not anymore suckers yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, it just kind of like is almost like a saying stop wait a minute or something so yeah it has more possibility for those sorts of things than any other medium i think i also think there's this kind of uh play in the films i'm thinking of, of sort of this this uh lineage of of soft film rose gold and now red film where you're kind of you have this voiceover track of this man who who speaks in all three films, who I'm very curious about who this guy is. But then you also kind of interject, you know, and, you, and we kind of hear your voice and you almost have this kind of dueling narrative. And it's often his voice that kind of lays down this, this initial layer. And then your voice is that thing that you're talking about that kind of cuts through, you know? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about voice for a long time. I mean, one of the things I think about every time I interact with other people basically is my own voice. And um, I think that obviously there's something to the kind of male voice of authority of that, that particular voice actor. Like I cast him looking for a kind of deep authoritative sounding voice or whatever that means. But like, yeah. um, I keep thinking also about the idea of someone being presidential and how most people, especially women surveyed, don't think that Elizabeth Warren seemed presidential or really that any woman ever seems presidential. And I think the idea of like a male voice is really connected to that too. Like that's something that's been relevant throughout time, like mm -hmm. who sounds like they know what they're talking about when they speak. And I was doing a lot of research about that and I was kind of trying to maybe even talk directly about it. I was reading like Audre Lorde has a lot of great writing about, or one piece in particular about silence and speaking and what it, she's writing when she finds out she has cancer and it's about sort of all the things that she didn't say and 
um, what's kind of lost when we don't feel like we can speak. And at first I was sort of approaching this, trying to talk about how women's voices are policed and how some people get to speak and others don't from a more kind of theoretical talking about like literally addressing those things um, mode, but it didn't feel like it was really that interesting. So I started kind of coming at it more from a comparing two voices mode and that I would be the sort of authority of the films and I would be the person who wrote the content, but mm -hmm. it would be delivered through this voice that kind of demands to be listened to. And then I would interject and make it clear who's really in charge every once in a while. And maybe a listener would sort of think about what those two things mean or how, what kind of attention each voice garners from mm -hmm. a listener. Yeah, because the films are kind of feminist films among many other things. And that was just one way I was trying to like use the structure of the film to talk about the content instead of just saying it directly. There's this moment in soft film that I really love where the 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 voiceover, the male the male uh, voiceover, he's kind of going through his line and he's, and he's sort of delivering it in that tone that now is so familiar to me, um, that kind of authoritative tone. But then he messes up over the word palimpsest. And then yeah. he and then he kind of stumbles and he's and he and you hear him kind of off off mic like ask you like what is what is this word and then you hear you and you say oh, it's palimpsest and he says okay palimpsest and then and then he kind of continues with his line, but it's yeah. one of these moments where your confidence in the authority of that voice is all of a sudden shaken and then you're mm -hmm. the person that kind of comes in and and sort of pushes it on the right track and I thought that was very indicative of the way that you were manipulating the voices there. Yeah, in the film and all of my work is sort of about, like the things that we get um, handed down to us or the things that seem like they knew what they were doing or were made with great intention, like the news or mm -hmm. uh, any kind of famous popular image or even like an object as it was designed and ends up in a store. And actually it's usually just the kind of result of a bunch of people making random decisions. Yeah. And obviously like as has been heavily talked about, like all the technologies that we use are embedded with the kind of biases of the people who made them. Mm -hmm. and yeah, so I want to also to sort of reveal how you get this finished product and it seems like it's exactly as it should have been, but really there was um, all this kind of tension and uncertainty behind how it was made. I also think like people really want artists to be kind of authorities on their own work and to make something and then say like, this is how I always knew it was going to be. And this is mm -hmm. how I intended every part of this to be. And being an artist is obviously very much not like that. Like so many things are just kind of how they ended up being and sometimes you don't even know how you like I look at rose gold and I'm like how did I even make that like I don't know it yeah. all just there are so many accidents in it and then accidents that I latched onto and pushed further and yeah so I also want to talk about in the film how things are the products of misunderstandings and accidents and I had this experience when I first saw rose gold at foxy production in New York and I, I had seen your photographs and I, I knew them I knew them pretty well at that point. I went in, it was the first video I saw, and it was this moment where I was like, oh my God, I like I can't believe she pulled this off. It because it felt like this total like explosion outward of your of your world. How was that process of of having that film come together? What were those things that were, you know, not planned that you pushed? 
Uh, yeah, well, first of all, they invented the rose gold iPhone in the yeah. first place. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, this object is, has everything I'm interested in. Like, I can't believe they would make such a thing. It felt like a gift to me. And I was in my, the beginning of my second year of Yale MFA. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like in a very productive headspace, also in a very, very like stressed out, anxious. Like I was sort of in a space of making work for school and making work for the outside world like um i had done my first show at foxy production right before i went to grad school so i didn't have any real opportunities to show before school but then suddenly as soon as i got to school all of this stuff happened mm -hmm. so i was also i think that there was a combination of being in a super manic headspace and then the rose gold um iphone getting introduced that was the first kind of accident of the film and the film kind of has this like really intense tone that I guess mirrors both how I felt at the time and also how I sort of felt a viewer would, um, what a viewer would need to pay attention to a piece of video in 2015, I guess it was, um, which is that like, I thought they would need a new piece of information or a new visual um, as soon as the, last one had been up for like 10 seconds or else I would lose their attention. Yeah. And I think it's also like something about asking for people's attention and for feeling like someone is giving you kind of like a gift if they're giving you their time to watch a video and sort of responding to that by trying to make it as pleasurable as possible, which I think is also like related to the kind of overly seductive advertising materials surrounding the object mm -hmm. um, the rose gold iphone so i was thinking about all that stuff and then i started thinking i need to make a film out of this phone somehow and reading all the ad copy and also looking into kind of other objects where color had been sort of used as a selling point or where we had been sort of sold the same thing that we already have but as a new thing just because they changed the color of it which mm -hmm. has done over and over again but it seems particularly egregious in a $800 phone or I can't remember how much it cost when it first came out but I remember thinking like wow I will never get one of these mm -hmm. and then also at the same time I was reading Lauren Berlant's book Cruel Optimism which still seems I mean I was just rereading it a little bit because I'm doing a book with Aperture and I'm kind of going over a lot of old theory that I read mm -hmm. for the book and it's still so relevant like about how we kind of are sold these fantasies of um, a good life through buying things and through working and buying and how um, we sort of need these desires she calls them the kind of object of desire which could or objects of attachment which could be like a bad relationship or um, a job or thing that you're buying or a sort of like aspirational body type or it's like any all these sorts of attachments that we have that keep us thrown into the world and give us things to kind of work towards but also that hold us back because they keep us working and um, exhausting ourselves and kind of buying into capitalism essentially and I thought that the rose gold iPhone could be a kind of perfect vessel to talk about those ideas which still seem kind of at the core of a lot of the things I'm trying to get at at my work and that the, that was also one of the kind of painful elements of wanting and buying and shopping and 
looking at obsolete objects that I felt was present in my photos, but was kind of getting lost. Mm -hmm. I guess I kind of answered a different question. But. That's okay. <laughs> so I, I, I can't remember if this happens at the end of, of soft film, but in red film and rose gold, at the end, there is this kind of, uh, you know, this, this scrolling list of all these writers, philosophers. I'm sure Lauren Berlant's work is on that list. So I, I'm curious, like, what your relationship is like with theory and when you're starting to write these scripts, like, how they come together and how do you sort of manage all these aphorisms and what's your relationship to that, to that world, that kind of scholarship? Well, I sort of love and hate theory. Like, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have a theory background. I just always... Well, I mean, I guess I do as much as anyone else does, but I don't have like a PhD or anything. Um, and I do feel like a, a lot of the people I talk to about theory, like have spent, you know, really concentrated numbers of years steeped in it. And I have just read whatever seemed interesting to me over the years. So I have a very kind of like willy nilly random relationship to what I've read and then huge gaps in that, which yeah. I think. Um, I think allows me sometimes, I mean, I think sometimes it's just confusing and leads to misinterpretation, but also allows me to sort of see certain absurdities or gaps in things too. And I think that theory has a lot of like mirrors around it, or it seems really difficult and sort of vaunted to a lot of people. But ultimately, a lot of it is just kind of saying the same thing over and over again. And I don't know, it, theory can kind of be like kitsch, like something that Red Film is really trying to get at is that ideas end up being kind of reproduced and used over and over again in the same way that objects do. And that even the ways we have of talking about things can start to feel a little bit stale. And I guess this is sort of a common trajectory, like you read all your Baudrillard and your whatever. Um, dare, I mean, I don't really like Derrida, but all your like people that you read at the beginning who are the most famous ones and they sort of blow your mind at, when you're like 20 because you've never heard anyone describe yeah. them in a way that makes so much sense. And then you kind of get over it. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess that's kind of my relationship to it. But I also still just love reading other people kind of sum up the world in ways that are neat and that make sense and I mean that theory kind of does the same thing as images it like sort of aggregates the world into like some easily digestible text that mirrors back what you already thought but in a better more concise way than you might have been able to think of on your own. Um, I'm also really happy to misuse theory and to like mm -hmm. put my own misunderstandings of it into work and I have no kind of feeling of being beholden to it. I mean, there are certain writers, like I wouldn't want to like bastardize Lauren Berlant's ideas, but mm -hmm. I would be fine with saying the wrong version of Baudrillard. You know, I, I guess there are certain people you're willing to like disrespect and others <laughs> that you're not. But <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's just personal preference at a certain point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really like the way that theory kind of makes it into these scripts that you write. It's almost like this sonic texture. It's like the word palimpsest, you know what I mean? Like what's yeah. the, what's the process of culling, culling that down of creating that, that texture? Yeah. I usually start with like 200 pages of things that I've pulled. Oh my God. Red film was like 200 pages. It was really intense. I, Rose gold is probably like 80 or something, but, and I will just like have tons and tons of 
pages of writing organized by, for example, I'll talk about red phone. I had like <laughs> returning to holes and I had like all these examples of indifferent theory of how kind of um, either the other or nature or art was supposed to help us return to like some originary state. And mm -hmm. I thought I maybe want to talk about that. So I had all these examples of that. And then I had theory about makeup uh, in one section. And then I had like a lot of theory about the miniature versus gigantic, like Susan Stewart's on longing and other parts where people had sort of talked about scale, but in more kind of political terms. And then I had a whole section about truth and the idea of whether we can know anything about the inside by looking at the outside. And it's all kind of organized into different sections. And then I tried to kind of like write a few minutes for each section, which is basically just impossible. So mm -hmm. I usually end up just kind of combing over them over and over again and taking parts and then writing my own writing into them until it gets short and then doing that again and again until it gets shorter and shorter. And then I'll usually record about two hours worth of material because like you said, it is really about sonic texture and wordplay and what kind of sounds surprising when you hear it. And some things sound so pretentious and kind of emo when you hear them spoken and others suddenly make sense when you hear them spoken. And I am trying to keep a certain amount of pretension in there and mm -hmm. a certain amount of fake emotion or like I'm trying to kind of like play with those ways that it might start to become a bit grating to listen to as well so I'm just trying to get a balance and then I and then I start editing it as the audio files and I just edit it in Premiere and like cut that down over and over again and I usually get a bunch of people to listen at that point and to tell me what makes sense and what doesn't um, it's an incredibly difficult time-consuming process and every time I start it feels impossible and I'm trying to kind of make a film without using that strategy but I mm -hmm. have to say I do have like a 200 page word document that I'm working on right now and then I'll also have things that I know I want to put in that are kind of separate like palimpsest I just thought was like such an annoying word like I hear <laughs> it so much it's like everything like I don't know. People just can't resist that word. Yeah, um, it's it, juicy. It a word, but um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of poke at um, the pretension of the word a little bit, and and to make clear that some people don't know and don't even care what it, mm -hmm. <laughs> what it means. Yeah. <laughs> was for red film? Was the production crazy? I mean, did you when you were thinking about these kind of different uh, sets where the where the film takes place? You know, there are these sequences where we are seeing art photograph for reproduction purposes, and there's sequences where we're seeing a cosmetics factory, and then there's these sequences where the, there are these dancers who are wearing these red uniforms who are sort of walking through these large-scale banners of a Roman emperor that's blue in the face. You know, I mean, how did you start to put together these sets? Was that a, a big jump for you? Yeah, or I should explain also that, like, I'll go through the text pieces and I, I try to, I feel like you can tell when you start with an idea and everything comes from there, like the rose gold iPhone or 
Red film was a little bit more um, unclear or kind of spread out in its originary idea. Like it didn't have one object, but it did have a sort of set of concerns. And I'll go through from the kind of beginning idea and try to also pull parts of text that I know could have strong images. Mm -hmm. So for example, I wanted to have the line being blue in the face from telling the same story over and over again, because it was about sort of saying the same thing about like where truth and authority comes from and the kind of arbitrariness of it over and over again, but it not really mattering in the face of all the kind of forces of power that don't care, basically. And um, I knew I had all the pictures of vaunted old artworks or um, objects that also have that sort of like unfuckwithable power yeah. in them. And I ha knew I had one that had a blue face and that like there would be something sort of satisfying and easy and um, kind of poppy almost about pairing this kind of big, maybe slightly annoying to think about idea with this immediately satisfying visual that has nothing to do with it and everything to do with it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I'm always kind of aggregating all the, all these images and ideas to sort of find those exactly that type of connection, like something that means the same thing that I couldn't have known until I brought so much stuff together which is a very um, un-efficient uh, way of working. But yeah, so I comb, I'll comb the text and kind of find images that I think I could make out of the text. And then I start basically trying to make those images happen. So I spent a long time trying to get into a makeup factory, which is very, very difficult. Um, and then I was doing a residency at the AGO in Toronto, at this big museum. So. I asked them if I could film in their kind of art reproduction area. And that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. Um, and then I also knew I wanted a red car in the film and that I really wanted to get one of those sets where you can drive the car into. Yeah. And I kept going back and forth because I felt so guilty about spending that much money on one shot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I almost canceled it like three times, but I'm so glad that I, I feel like it's kind of the center of that film now. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of like your it's like your Michael Bay explosion, you know. It's yeah. <laughs> it's it's the one it's the one shot. It's like is it a Mustang or is it a Ferrari? What is it? Um yeah, it's a 1985 Mustang. Or no, actually I should know this, but I can't remember now. I think I try I was trying to get a Mustang and it's actually like a Ford with some different Ford convertible from the 80s it, it's like an actual piece of garbage um, <laughs> it does not does not run yeah yeah we basically had to kind of push it into the studio like the person who owns it um it was from a guy who owns a bunch of vintage like prop cars in toronto and we filmed all those shots in toronto and he was able to drive it to the set because he knew exactly how it needed to be driven but um, we could barely get it into the studio. <laughs> it was really <laughs> a challenge. What was the idea of the car? I mean, it's not, you know, it's not lost on me. There's there's sort of, I, I understand the role it plays in the film, but you said like you, you knew you wanted to have this red car. I mean, what was the, why was it important to you? Yeah, I guess I was thinking about the kind of life cycle and obsolescence of cars and how they're this thing that, I mean, I've always been pretty obsessed with cars and the sort of de the design of cars. I've been really into this one car 
also a red Ferrari that's in the Momo design collection that was designed to be like so much faster than every other car, but now just is this kind of like emptied out shell that hangs on the wall of MoMA. Um, is that the car that's in the still image? Yeah. Okay, got it, got it, got it. I, I guess I like the way that cars will kind of start off as this literally shiny idealized thing and then kind of fall out of favor and look very um, unappealing and um, kind of garbagey for a while. And then after a certain period, they come back and look great again. Mm -hmm. And that just fit with the kind of like human fickleness that I was trying to talk about in that film too. And the way that we kind of cycle through objects and ideas without much regard for where they go when we're finished with them. And I also knew that the film needed a central, like, bam, super beautiful image to look at. And so actually I had one roll of 35 millimeter film, too. And that car is the one shot that's filmed on 35. Is everything else 16 millimeter? Yeah, it was basically just like, I have to make something that says satisfying to look at and like juicy as it possibly can be. So I'm going to film this like vintage shiny red car um, on 35. Um, but I also was, again, kind of making that film in a very um, manic, um, stressed out state and was making these decisions like sort of day by day really quickly. Like I had very little time to film all of that stuff. Yeah, I can remember like I had this studio for all the dancers and I just like tacked on the car for an extra like couple hours and found the car and got it driven there. I found someone to with the 35 millimeter camera, got her to come and film it for me. And then, yeah, like went back to filming the dancers. So it was kind of almost an afterthought, but it was another one of those sort of lucky accidents that makes the, I mean, I try to just follow through on everything that I have some intuition might be important to do, which can be expensive and um, exhausting, but usually works out, especially when you're trying to kind of start with a huge mass of material and edit it down to something that um, is satisfying. It helps to have a lot of stuff to work with. There are two kind of frequent collaborators that keep popping up in your in your work when I see it. And one is the the is this man who who is, you know, the the voice of these films, you know, the voiceover artist that you've worked with. The other is this woman, I know her name's Tracy, um, mm -hmm. who appears in a lot of your photographs and is in uh, a lot of the films in, in Red Film. Who is she and what's your what's your relationship like and what's her role in these in, in your in, in your work? Um, Tracy is uh, someone I went to undergrad with in Toronto. Um, like she's been a good friend for like over a decade now I guess and I always photographed her like I filmed her when we were in undergrad even I have these really bad black and white pictures that I took of her when she was like 18 mm -hmm. and I was <laughs> or something um and yeah she's a graphic designer at the and a kind of art director at the New York Times now and she's actually a pretty famous designer in her own or she's really quite well known now. I don't know, I guess I've always loved the way that she kind of transforms in front of the camera and she poses with a lot of irony and with a sort of um, idea in mind of how her representation will read and she works in the field of making magazines and making advertisements and images that will be 
sort of consumed by a mass public, especially, I guess, in the, at the New York Times now. So she kind of just understands the sort of meta commentary that I'm trying to make on making images of women. And she sort of responds appropriately when she's in front of a camera. And she also like is a really funny, smart person who thinks ironically a lot. So she just like sort of has this sense of play when she's posing that no one else I've ever photographed has been able to capture like I just love photographing her she it's um, everything she does is exactly what I want like Mm -hmm. I guess um that's how people feel about the people that they love to photograph or paint or whatever over time but yes I just find her like endlessly perfect to to make images of and I photographed a few models for the approach show and I was interested in photographing like these models from e-com sites and stuff and models can be really amazing too because they're like so well trained at looking good but mm-hmm. I don't know there's something about Tracy she just looks both funny and serious and vulnerable and like tough as nails all at the same time the models that are in your in the in the photographs in the approach show uh that you're pulling from e-commerce sites I do every once in a while you, you I have this this uh thing that happens where if you're online shopping and you see a, a kind of fit model and, you know, whatever, that 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 face kind of registers in your mind because you're scrolling through hundreds and hundreds of items, every once in a while I have the experience where you'll be on a completely different, in a completely different context, on a different website, different company, and all of a sudden you see the same person, you yeah, know, and it's, know. <laughs> and it's incredibly jarring. Uh, yeah. That experience kind of reminded me of your of your work a little bit, and especially those those images with the with these e-commerce models. Yeah, a lot of people recognize, especially Sophie. Sophie's not in the approach show, but she's the first um, model from Essence that I photographed a bunch. And yeah, people recognize her all the time. She's kind of iconic for that website. And then that website, like a lot of people know it. A lot of people have never heard of it, but it kind of has taken over the like luxury e-com market for a certain like hipster (laughs) buyer, I guess, which is also something I've been interested in, like how they've kind of branded themselves into trying to seem like they're more than a store. Um, Mm -hmm. They've done both a good and a bad job of that. I think like it's a little bit cynical, but there's also, you know, a lot of great writing on there. Like my friend Durga, Chubos is one of their editors and she's an incredible writer and she gets like so many good people to contribute so yeah I guess it's complicated because that's who has the money to produce that kind of content now but it's also just like an evil store selling um, mass produced clothing that was mostly made for much less than it sold for and like the kind of fast fast I mean, it's not fast fashion because it's several echelons above that and too expensive. And a lot of it is pretty well made, but the fashion industry just produces so much waste. And do you think a lot yeah. about fashion? I mean, are you are you interested in fashion? Yeah, like one of my favorite activities is just looking through essence and seeing what not necessarily to buy things, although occasionally I do, but just to see like the way that fashion kind of absorbs um, what other people have been doing maybe for a year or two and then like reflects it back to us as things we can buy and the way that it's always slightly behind the times even of the most avant-garde brands like I look at like the Balenciaga show 
which everyone's so obsessed with Balenciaga, but I'm always like, well, those are the things that like artists or musicians or people that I know have been already interested in for a while. But it, but there's something satisfying and almost it's almost like the same thing as theory, like to see it aggregated and then like spit back at you in the form of a piece of clothing um, or like a slogan t-shirt or a pair of ugly, those ugly sneakers are a good example. <laughs> like all these kind of things that have been floating in the air for a while is both like slightly irritating and satisfying. Um, so I, yeah, I really like looking for those things and the ways that things repeat. One of the most satisfying things that I look for in all of my research, whether it's ideas or fashion or objects, is just the way that things repeat over time too. So fashion is full of those examples. And I have been reading a lot lately about like fast fashion and how how many like billions of pounds of clothes get thrown away and how um, wasteful the fashion industry is. But I'm not sure that would ever make it into any work or anything. I'm just like interested in that. Well, I th there is something, you know, one of the smaller shows uh, at, or sorry, one of the smaller uh, videos rather at, at your show at The Approach is you mm -hmm. sort of walking through Barney's as it's, yeah. as it's shutting down. And, yeah. uh, there, you know, there's, there's, I mean, I don't know if that's the same conversation about fast fashion uh, and the environment necessarily, but I do think there's something very interesting about that. Um, I didn't actually make it to Barney's, you know, during its its closing, but I was interested in it just to kind of see what the environment was like. And I was always interested to hear what people's takes were on it, because I think that there is such a clash between how pristine the objects they're selling is and how kind of valueless they seem like once all that's torn away. And like the clash between the ugly, um, like, like signage that, that, you know, Barney's would put up on the, on the walls and, you know, and the, and these clothes that they're selling, there's, it was a very weird environment. Yeah. And those signs are like, I, a few weeks later after I filmed that, that stationery store papyrus was going out of sale mm -hmm. or out of business and they had the exact same signs as well. Yeah. And, yeah, there's something about the way that every store that goes out of business uses the same signs that's like really tragic and also kind of indicative of how it's like a kind of giving up or a throwing in the towel. Like suddenly you're like, okay, the jig is up. We no longer need to create this giant facade of value around these things. We can just call them what they are and mm -hmm. slap discount price tags on them and yeah I went back to Barney's a bunch of times during that period and it kept getting more and more kind of apocalyptic yeah. I mean I keep thinking how in some ways lucky they are though that that all happened right before this um, but there would just be like piles and piles of sh like $800 shoes and um, mm -hmm. all the kind of ugliest stuff and, and then yeah I think at the end they just threw it all away on the street like I saw pictures of that too like you said just really drawn to the kind of way that all the uh, structures around making those things seem like they're important and worth spending money on kind of went away immediately there's one other sort of recurring shot in red film that is, was I was curious where this where it came from and you know you seem to be hanging upside down and I hope oh, that, <laughs> and I hope that you weren't reading two hundred lines of material upside down. But w what was what was the idea behind this shot? 
Yeah, I really wanted to read a longer script upside down, but I couldn't physically do it. And I used to be a teenage figure skater and like, I feel like I'm pretty good at physically torturing myself. I've seen seen that online. You're you're like an amazing figure skater. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, I spent um, my whole youth like in a skating rink from when I was like about eight, I guess, till I which is late start figure skating but I was kind of prodigal for a while and then when I hit puberty I kind of realized how insane it was and how much pressure I was under and sort of stopped being the prodigy that I had been when I was younger but I did trained like five or six hours a day um a lot of times and like left school early and was like very intense about it and I've started doing it again in the last couple years I find it really cathartic now to just do something that doesn't really have an end goal and that kind of requires a concentration that is more related to like muscle memory than actual thinking Mm -hmm. but in red film the upside down parts I really wanted to have a section that kind of mirrored the ideas that I mentioned of what we can garner about inside truth or character from looking at the outside and also our kind of cultural insistence on associating beauty with truth or like thinking that we can trust people who look certain ways or that there's some like inherent value and kind of dignity and things that are beautiful. I was thinking about that more in terms of artworks and um, objects and relating it to kind of pressure on women and people on the internet, for example, to look a certain way. But I wanted to have these shots where the kind of inside of my body is like literally pressing on the outside and where also just like where you think you have a narrator who's telling you certain things and then I'm kind of transformed into looking like myself but different and you can't quite tell. Like a lot of people can't tell at first. There are a few shots that give it away where there's someone sort of walking around me. Well, I suppose and- you kind of you kind of teased it's sort of you're, you're upside down and then it's not till later that we sort of start to orient ourselves that you're, you're you know, suspended. Yeah, and I had seen this like science documentary from or it was like a kid's science show from the 50s or something. I have no idea where I saw it, but um, it was about truth in a different way. Like, oh, you think you know what's going on here, but perspective is relational. Or I guess the point is that like perspective is determined by outside factors or something. But mm-hmm. this guy's like talking and then suddenly you realize he's upside down. And I so wanted to just kind of use that image in a different way. And that section where I'm mostly upside down was written kind of in the style of an Instagram influencer or like an Instagram caption. I had been reading a lot of these kind of materials from particularly from sort of young women with big followings where they would be sort of often very articulately written and have a lot of great ideas mixed with like extreme narcissism and a dose of insecurity. And they were kind of like written often in this kind of like ubiquitous language of like mm-hmm. needing attention and admitting to needing attention. And I think we all feel that way a bit. And and then also needing to kind of push away the medium and seem above it, but also admitting that you need it. And um, like a lot of them talk about real things like feminism and the kind of the way that social media impedes on your life and a lot of the content of these kind of commentaries is about kind of getting back to some sort of more real existence or 
Um, there often be like a sort of hippie vibe to some of them. Um, and so I was trying to kind of write in that vein mm -hmm. and to be sort of upside down and frantic while I was saying that part of the text. Um, I wouldn't expect anyone to quite pick up on that, but I think that that kind of language is becoming more and more familiar. And it's also related to a particular way of speaking of clearly having thought about what you're saying and maybe even edited it a thousand times, but still trying to maintain the illusion of not caring, which I think has like always been important for public figures who are valued for being cool even way before Instagram, but is sort of like exacerbated on that platform. I want to extend a big thank you to Sarah Swinar for talking to me. Uh, once again, her new work, Red Film, is available online at theapproach.co.uk. Um, I'm pretty sure it's there until the 30th of April. So you should really take advantage of this opportunity and, and go check it out. That's really one of the best things that's happening right now is that a lot of galleries, a lot of artists are making video work available. And oftentimes it's, it's really hard to track these things down. So it's a great opportunity and I'm really grateful that people are doing that. Yeah, so, so take a look. Our show is produced by Sarah Levine. Our music is by Jack and Eliza. And you can find us on Instagram at image.culture. We'll be back next week with another conversation. And uh, until then, stay safe and clap at seven. <laughs>